And I think we're in the midst of a real sea change when we think about sustainability, because for many years, sustainability has been about doing less harm, emitting less CO2, wasting less water, ensuring less waste goes to the landfill. And those strategies and tactics around sustainability have not adequately addressed the challenges that we're facing in the world, both environmentally, but socially as well. And it's dangerous to separate the social dimension out of the notion of sustainability and just focus on the environment, because we can't have a healthy environment when we're not paying people a living wage. I don't think the U.S. government should be subsidizing the payroll costs of business. Uh, business should be paying a wage that people can live on. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Jeffrey Hollander, CEO of American Sustainable Business Council, and in my opinion, the father of the sustainable consumer goods and thought movement in America. He is the co-founder of Seventh Generation. It is a privilege to have you on Mindful Businesses. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. Happy to be here with you. You co-founded Seventh Generation in 1988. That's about 33 years ago. The sustainable goods industry was at its nascency. Most people didn't even think about recycling or green practices in their everyday life. Did most municipalities even have curbside recycling then? Generally speaking, not. I mean, we were quite far ahead of the curve, which sometimes is a blessing and sometimes is a curse. If you're that far ahead of the curse, you better be good at surviving because it took our culture and our society many years. And in some respects, they're still catching up with the idea that the choices that we make in the products that we purchase and use can have a huge impact on society and the planet. How did you think about these things? Because it wasn't the norm. What influenced you to think about these practices, about being green, about being sustainable? So back in 1985, I wrote a book called How to Make the World a Better Place, A Beginner's Guide. And that book was my exploration of all the things we could do as individuals to make a contribution to solving the challenges that our planet faces. And in writing that book, it became clear to me that business had an important role to play in addressing the challenges we were facing. And of all the businesses that I could think of, the environment was an area where business could make perhaps the biggest contribution. So the idea was quite simple. Sell products that lessen your negative footprint, imprint on the planet, water conservation, energy conservation, and other products that mitigated the negative impact that most of us have on the planet. And that was an idea that appealed mostly to members of environmental organizations. It was not an idea that appealed to the public widely till probably a decade or so later. And how old were you when you wrote that book? I think I was about 31. I had just sold my first business to uh, Warner Communications. It was a publishing company. 
And I took some time off after the business was sold to sort of figure out what I was going to do next in my life. And writing the book was my way of figuring that out. You did not graduate from college. I did not. I went to Hampshire College for a year and a half, but then I took a year off and never went back. And again, not that I'm not a huge advocate of education. I just didn't like being a full-time student. Every business that I've been involved with subsequent to dropping out of college has been very educationally focused. Much of what Seventh Generation had to do was to educate people on the connection between their behavior and product choices in the planet. So education has featured prominently in all the businesses that I've started. And in fact, uh, the first business I started was a continuing education program. So my father was an entrepreneur his whole life. He felt that education, though it opened your mind, often also held you back. He would call it the handicap of a learned man or woman. So do you think it made you more maverick? It did not restrain you. You were a creative, smart person, not going to college, not being constrained by people's thought. You could create your own thoughts. Well, I think there were two positive things about not going to college. I mean, one, in terms of my business career, I got a head start of almost uh, six years on people that go to college and then go get an MBA. So I had already had a lot of firsthand business experience by the time they graduated from their MBA programs. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I learned something that was really important, which was there's almost nothing you can't teach yourself or find some very bright person to help you learn. And that process of, of educating myself on issues that are new to me and finding mentors to help teach me about those things was really a powerful experience because by choosing my mentors rather than depending upon the teacher that was assigned to the class I enrolled for, I could choose some really wonderful people. And I had the incredible, unique luck to study with people like Marshall McLuhan, to study with people like incredible educational philosopher Ivan Illich, who wrote Deschooling Society, and a number of other wonderful, wonderful mentors. And in some ways, you know, that's how I got my education. So how hard was it to go against the grain and how to even educate the consumer? One of your products early on was... Low flow shower head. Low flow shower head. So how hard was it at that time to go completely against the grains? Now we know terminologies like green initiatives or sustainable initiatives. At that point in time, people didn't even use these words in everyday business or everyday life. It was certainly a challenge. I mean, I think we were able to make a good argument that a low flow showerhead not only helps save fresh water, which is a resource that we're running out of, but uh, low flow showerheads actually reduced your consumption of hot water, which allowed you to actually save money every time you took a shower. And we would present the customer with both the environmental and the financial argument for the use of the product. And it's really interesting because over 30 years later, those low flow showerheads are mandated in most hotel uh, rooms and public showers. So again, we were ahead of our time but we're definitely on to something that is a really important tool in fighting climate change as well as the limited amount of fresh water that we have available to us. 
And sustainability for any brand is a journey. You know, we evolve, right? There's no absolute. No, we're all on a spectrum of uh, great to horrible, and we're somewhere in between. And I think we're in the midst of a real sea change when we think about sustainability, because for many years, sustainability has been about doing less harm, Mm -hmm. emitting less CO2, wasting less water, ensuring less waste goes to the landfill. And those strategies and tactics around sustainability have not adequately addressed the challenges that we're facing in the world, both environmentally, but socially as well. And today, I think we have to move towards an approach that is either called net positive or regenerative, where we can't be focused on not doing harm and not doing something bad. We actually have to focus on fixing the challenges that we're facing. Mm -hmm. We have to focus on regenerating the soil by using regenerative agriculture practices that build up the quality of the soil, that sequester CO2 in the soil. And agriculture is a wonderful place to practice these regenerative tactics because businesses selling products that come from agriculture can play a very important role in their supply chain by helping source that they're working with move in a more responsible direction. Sustainability is not only environment. It requires that we pay fair wages, we pay benefits, time off, maternity leave, and uh, job security. What was the culture at 7th Generation? You know, in many ways, many companies like to market what's good about them, and it looks better from the outside than it does from the inside. Our goal was to sort of flip that around and share some of the good things we were doing with our customers and our stakeholders, but really work hard to do things like create the best working experience that anyone has ever had, to make sure that all employees are an ownership stake in the business and can participate with our shareholders in the value that they create. So that social context is really critical. We face huge challenges in this country from a social perspective. Tremendous income inequality, and one of the great ways we can address income inequality is by making sure employees are owners, making sure that we have more cooperatively owned businesses and more businesses that are owned by their workers, whether they're an ESOP, a co-op, or another structure that allows that to happen. But that's really important, and it's dangerous to separate the social dimension out of the notion of sustainability and just focus on the environment, because we can't have a healthy environment when we're not paying people a living wage. People can't be expected to be focused on and concerned about the environment when they can't feed their families. So we have to ensure that the well-being of people and our own employees and workers is taken care of at the same time as we're addressing the environmental challenges we face. So you had nap rooms in seventh generation before Google did. We had nap rooms built into the first office that we ever had. And that was the innovation of my co-founder, Alan Newman. I was probably a little too much of an uptight New York business person to go for the nap rooms, but uh, he insisted on that. We also had no chairs in any of our conference rooms. Everyone came and sat on the floor. There was no conference table. There were no chairs. 
we had a lot of uh, practices. Uh, in our monthly staff meeting, we would give out an award to the person that made the biggest mistake in the past month to try to encourage people to be open and share the mistakes they made so that they don't get repeated and we can learn from them. So we had an unusual culture, but it was a culture that was aligned with our values and our mission as a company. True. So you were mindful on all levels, not just marketing products, which are environmentally friendly. You might say we were a green company, not a company that sold green products. Talking about products and talking about sustainability, there is this dichotomy as an entrepreneur, a sustainable entrepreneur, and you're constantly creating products. You are creating the waste. You're creating things which are causing harm in the long term. How does a entrepreneur cope with this conflicting values, conflicting missions to make profit, to make products, and like you said, to have a positive impact on the planet? Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge we face is that business is based upon pushing off negative externalities onto society. And uh, the rules and regulations and incentives that govern business, the way they report their finances, are all driven around, in some ways, maximizing those externalities. And we really have to change the rules by which business gets done if we want better outcomes. If we want more sustainable, responsible businesses, we have to stop incentivizing them to externalize their negative impacts. And we need to do that through more involvement in public policy. For the past 30 or 40 years, business public policy has really been driven by a handful of huge multinational corporations. And that has not been a good influence. And the, what the American Sustainable Business Council tries to do is bring together responsible companies like Seventh Generation and Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia to advocate for public policies that basically make companies pay the price for those externalized costs so that they're financially incentivized to not do that. Right now, it's hard to convince companies to do something that's good for the environment, but bad for their bottom line. You know, we have to change the structure of that regulatory environment. I mean, the U.S. government spends over a billion dollars a year subsidizing the virgin timber industry. That artificially increases the price of toilet paper made from recycled fiber because they're not getting those subsidies. We subsidize the fossil fuel industry with hundreds of billions of dollars, which artificially lowers the price of the fuel that we use. That's not sustainable. It's not intelligent. It doesn't help us create a world that we can pass on to our children that they'll be happy about living in. So besides policy, the other thing that comes to mind is for things to last longer, we need skills to repair it. Our skill level, our craftsmanship in the United States has dropped. I mean, we build beautiful buildings. We had woodworkers who made fantastic fireplace mantles. Almost impossible to find one now, you know, maybe a niche in a small town. You'd find a woodworker who can make these, but... We have lost basic repair, handcrafting skills. So how important do you think education is, vocational education, in our path of sustainability? In order to create a healthy, thriving world, we need a very different mindset. 
we don't just need education. We need to think differently. We need to understand things like systems thinking to understand how everything is interconnected rather than highly compartmentalized. We need much more vocational training. I mean, one of the things that, that Germany has done so well is terrific opportunities for vocational training that give people the skills they need to get jobs in a new economy. And, you know, there's a fascinating store in Europe called Kingfisher, which is like Home Depot or Lowe's, and they're committed to a net positive future. They're committed to teaching the people that shop there how to fix things, not just buy new things. We need to think differently. We need to convince companies like Home Depot and Lowe's to teach people how to fix things they buy there that break, not just continually buy new things and throw the old ones away. Europe has the repairability law, right? Europe has a whole bunch of laws. I mean, they have laws around packaging and packaging waste. In many countries, the company that makes the packaging is responsible for taking it back. In some countries, even automobiles have to be disassembled and recycled. They can't be junked the way they are in the United States. Europe in general is many steps ahead of where we need to be from an environmental and a social perspective. I think that now that we have a new administration in Washington, we'll see encouraging progress that has eluded us for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. So let's come back to your time at Seventh Generation. It started as a startup and now it is acquired. Yes, in 2016, the company was sold to Unilever and that's been a wonderful thing for Seventh Generation. It's allowed us to accelerate our work on sustainability and regeneration, as well as expand into new countries and new markets around the world. And we have many, many great companies that have also been purchased with by Unilever, like Ben & Jerry's, which is another company that Unilever owns, Sir Kendington, which sells organic condiments, even Dollar Shave Club. So Unilever has bought a lot of different businesses and they've encouraged us to continue to pioneer our work on sustainability, never restrained us or held us back, and in many ways have adopted many of the policies that we have at Seventh Generation at Unilever uh, globally. So what is required to make a sustainable product successful? So you said Unilever took your mission from seventh generation to a higher level. Did they introduce new products? Well, in some cases, they brought financial resources we didn't have. Seventh generation is in the midst of a developing a significant project with the Native American community to generate wind energy to move us towards net zero emissions. Those types of very significant large investments were not things that we could do on our own, but things that they enabled us to do. In some cases, they have the R&D capabilities to solve problems that we have from a product development perspective. Green products must work comparably to traditional products. And Unilever has an incredible R&D capability where they can take the guidelines we have from an environmental perspective and help solve and improve performance of those products without compromising our environmental standards. So you departed from, from seventh generation in 2010. It was your baby. 
at what stage should an entrepreneur say, I'm done, it's time to walk away, somebody should take this and um, take it forward and grow it like Unilever has done? You know, there's no right answer that works for everybody. It's really something that is a personal choice that you have to make as an entrepreneur. For some people, that time comes after three, four, five years. For other people, it's 30, 40, 50 years before they're ready to move on. I was fortunate that after I left Seventh Generation, I was able to start another business with my family, with my daughter and my wife called Sustain Natural to continue to pioneer the work around net positive products. And we, of all things, got into the condom business as a way of developing a product that had great environmental profile, but also had great health benefits and helped make a contribution to slowing population growth. That is certainly a big driver of increasing CO2 emissions. And seven generations started as a catalog business? Mail order catalog, yes. Back in those days, there was no e-commerce. There were only mail order catalogs. And that's how we got our start. And then after about six or seven years, we decided to expand by selling our seventh generation brand products into natural food stores and ultimately focused on that wholesale business and sold off the catalog. So I'm addressing to you as a veteran entrepreneur. So when Sears catalog came, it was such a big deal in those days. Do you look at Amazon and the e-commerce giant that it has become and has transformed the landscape in general as a part of evolution, as what we will 30 years down look at as we look at uh, Sears? Well, certainly e-commerce, as largely driven by Amazon, has put to an end some of the wasteful parts of the Sears catalog business because printing millions and millions of catalogs that get used for a few minutes and then discarded and often not even recycled is a bad practice. But at the same time, when you build such a giant company as Jeff Bezos has done with Amazon, you face all kinds of challenges. You know, they're an ununionized company for the first time. While they've been on the forefront of raising minimum wage to $15 an hour, the working conditions are, in many cases, not satisfactory to many of the workers. I have mixed feelings about my support of Amazon. When you live far out in the country like I do, you do depend upon e-commerce to get things that aren't in your local store. But at the same time, it can be a dangerous addiction. And we can't forget the critical importance of shopping locally to support our local retailers, to create local jobs, to build up our local economy that, quite honestly, companies like Amazon threaten in a very serious way. So you come with years of experience and knowledge of entrepreneurship, of sustainability, of social, environmental and economic consciousness. And now you are the CEO of American Sustainable Council of Business Owners. It has in its membership over 250,000 businesses. What is the mission of the council? So the mission of the council is to create a more just, equitable, and sustainable economy. An economy that is healthy for people as well as the environment. So we're big advocates of increasing the minimum wage all over the United States to $15 an hour. 
not making companies like Amazon an exception to the rule. In fact, we're advocates for a living wage, which in many cases is higher than the $15 minimum an hour wage. We're also uh, big advocates of putting a price on carbon. We think that carbon is a huge negative externality. And if people had to pay, if businesses had to pay for their carbon emissions, they would be far more efficient and it would make it much easier to make the conversion to renewable energy. We believe that we have to control the use of plastic. Uh, plastics become something that is discarded throughout the world, something that has ended up in our oceans, something that is threatening ecosystems. And, uh, you know, we're probably not going to get rid of plastic, but we have to use plastic in a much more responsible fashion than we do today. And that goes for packaging in general. So we're businesses advocating for responsible, sustainable, equitable public policy, which is not what big business always is advocating. In many cases, large companies are fighting against increasing the minimum wage or fighting against putting a price on carbon. We believe that those things are good for the economy and will benefit us over the long term, even though they might cause some short-term disruption. Let me play the devil's advocate here about minimum wage. What do you tell the people who are opposed to increasing the minimum wage to $15? Forget even the living wage, even to the $15 minimum wage. They say it will cause inflation because if I pay my worker $15, I have to increase the price of what I sell. And also people will stop hiring as many people. It will cause unemployment. Well, if everyone has to pay $15 an hour, there's a level playing field that we'll all be on. So it won't affect how many jobs are created. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, if you're paying your workers seven or eight dollars an hour, they can't survive. What do they do? They depend upon food stamps. They depend upon other government subsidies. And so what we have is we have some companies who are paying a fair wage that their employees can live on. And we have other companies that are paying a wage that's so low, the government is subsidizing their payroll. Mm -hmm. I don't think the U.S. government should be subsidizing the payroll costs of business. Uh, business should be paying a wage that people can live on. In California, about a decade ago, they calculated the cost of Walmart not providing health care to its workers. And the state of California calculated that it cost 200 to 300 million dollars in increased emergency room fees because without health care, workers would wait until there was emergency, go to the emergency room, not be able to pay for the emergency room coverage, and the state of California ended up picking up the tab. It's simply not fair to other businesses when companies pay people so poorly that they have to take advantage of government subsidies. Even if, say, they don't qualify for government subsidies, they're in this area where they're just above the level where they cannot get any food stamps or reduce food lunches for their kids, they probably have to take a second job. This is to the people who say that it will cause unemployment. This person doesn't need the two jobs. He will probably be able to have a decent livelihood with the higher wages. Of course, 
Not having two or in some cases three jobs allows uh, parents to spend more time at home with their children, reading, studying, helping them with their homework, which has a huge value. It helps them participate in their local community. Who can volunteer for a nonprofit when they have two to three jobs? Mm -hmm. People who have a good job that pays them well uh, can participate in their community, their community life, can work at nonprofits and volunteer. There's huge benefits to our society to pay people enough to live on. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're creating poverty. What we do is ensure that people live in poverty and all of the negative things that come along with that. In many cases, not the ability to get health care. They are also in a place where they're nervous about the amount of food that they can acquire for their family. And it's a terrible cycle that doesn't make economic sense only makes sense for the companies that are taking advantage of the government and paying those low wages. Yeah, we have to change the overall mindset. We all walk this journey together. We all move forward to a more sustainable lifestyle for our citizenry and create a climate you know, where this is acceptable. Absolutely. And again, that's the purpose of the American Sustainable Business Council is to bring responsible progressive companies together so that we speak with a single voice to Washington and state capitals and let them know that these changes like increasing the minimum wage and putting a price on carbon are good for our economy and good for business. They won't necessarily be good for all businesses. Fossil fuel companies are not going to like putting a price on carbon, but uh, that's what we have to do to make sure that the planet survives for our children. Could you give us an example of what the American Sustainable Council of Business, an initiative or a lobbying effort that it has proposed to the government and has been implemented? Sure. One of the places that we've been very successful is in improving the ways in which businesses can fund themselves, particularly businesses started by women and other minorities have had a very, very hard time getting access to capital to start and grow their businesses. We were a big supporter and advocate of the jobs bill, and that jobs bill allowed crowdfunding to be accessed by businesses. So in some ways, we helped democratize the access to capital uh, for small and medium-sized companies where they couldn't do that before, where they were limited to going to a bank or having wealthy individuals they knew who could help finance their business, which is not the case for many women and minorities. So that was something that we're very proud of. Very recently in New York City, we worked with the New York City Pension Fund to get them to make a decision to take investments in fossil fuel companies out of their pension portfolio, something that we're also very proud of. We've passed in New York State and uh, California legislation around using safer chemicals in manufacturing. We've had some good success. There's a lot more work to do. But again, we're in a, a much more constructive political climate today than we were for the last four years. And we're very optimistic about the progress we can make and are looking for other businesses all the time to join with us in this work. We provide both an educational function. We have working groups where people learn about these issues. We have working groups that draft and comment on legislation. 
And then we help prepare our business members to go meet with legislators to uh, present the business case for why this type of legislation is good for the economy. You had such a packed career. You started your first business when you were 19. And what are your next steps now? Well, I really do four things in my life. And the most important is spend time with my family, be available to my kids, enjoy my new grandson. That's the number one priority. As CEO of the American Sustainable Business Council, that keeps me busy from a work perspective. I also teach social entrepreneurship at New York University, which is something I love. And I mentor lots of young business leaders. I spend time every week working with mostly younger people who are starting their first business and are looking for advice and ideas on how to grow it. On that uplifting note, wishing you all the best in whatever you do next. Thank you so much for coming on Mindful Businesses. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Hope this was helpful to your listeners. You're listening to Mindful Businesses with Vidya Ayer. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. If you learned a thing or two on this episode, share it with one friend. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.